and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. I'm Joseph Alim. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Jose Valim made his big reveal. It is an NX project called Bumblebee. So this is the thing that he teased about. And if you're in the Elixir space and you're already in the social media at all with Elixir, you've probably already heard about this and seen a ton about it. So we're just going to cover it lightly because stay tuned for right after the news, we're going to talk with Jose and some of his team to learn about what it is they created, how it works, and what this means for Elixir and going forward. It brings neural network tasks to Livebook and Phoenix and Elixir and makes it really easy in a way that, you know, it just wasn't possible before. They have some example Livebooks in there. So it's like pretty simple to just pull it down and like spin it up and see what, you know, what happens. You know, you don't have to have a, a beefy GPU. I mean, that certainly helps, but like I just did, I did it on my M1 MacBook Pro and took about 30 seconds for like a stable diffusion image to generate, but 12 or so lines of code maybe to get all of that going, right? And that includes like the keynote input to where you like collect your, you know, your text, like gen generate me an image of Jose Valim sipping margaritas or something. It would try to generate that, right? And it would show that to you in, in your live book. It's quite amazing. So it's really helpful that they have the live book in there. So you could literally just... You don't have to code, right? Just just pull the live book down, type in your your prompt, letter rip. Yeah. So I should mention what this does for live book is it adds a new smart cell type that is called a neural network task. And then once you drop that in, then you have this little drop down where you can make different options. And it supports stable diffusion, which is that very popular image generation where you can do mashup of different styles and things and generate images that are very believable and high quality. Then it also has GPT-2 text generation where you give it a prompt and it will finish a sentence or a paragraph and continue on with what you've started and seeded it with. And it also does image classification, which is like I can drop in a picture, spins for a second and says, oh, that's a banana. It makes all of these super simple. So just to prove how simple this was, Chris McCord created a single live book app. Like the entire Phoenix live book app is in a single file. So he did that. And then he did added in the ability to do image classification where you can drop in, you know, drag and drop in a picture into this Phoenix app that's all in a single file. And the whole thing's like less than 300 lines of code, right? That's Phoenix plus the image classifier and drops all that in there. And then it like spins asynchronously and then says, hey, here's here's the thing, it's a space shuttle. That's what you dropped in. And that's where it start. you start to get to see like, that's how easy it is, right? To add something like this, something that's normally a very advanced feature that I can add that just pulling down models that already exist on Hugging Face, which is like a, a huge repository where you can find all these different pre-trained models and just add those into your app. And that's what's the big deal. That's really cool. I mean, previously you'd have to have like other services, APIs, all sorts of stuff. It, just to clarify, you said 300 lines of code uh, to get a live book app. I think you meant live view app. <laughs> so many live view things. Yes, sorry. 
Too many live things, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and in case you don't you don't have really any idea what we're talking about, I'll give you a quick primer. GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformers. Do you need to know what that means? No, but that's nice trivia to pop onto your friends to, to make it sound like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> also, chat GPT versus GPT-2. GPT-2, th- these are like version numbers, right? That's, that's the second iteration. It's okay. It can be pretty bad sometimes, like nonsensical stuff. But what you've probably heard about on on social media, or maybe you haven't, doesn't matter. Chat GPT, though, has been making the rounds, and it's been very good. And it does the same sort of thing where it's, but it's conversational. So you ask a question, and it responds with some conversational kind of text. So it is text generation as well. That's a little bit better. But Chat GPT is not open source. This is not something that you can necessarily pull into Bumblebee. So if you're thinking that you you want to play with chat GPT and, and Livebook, uh, it's not today. But GPT-2, you can. And likewise, on the image side, you've probably heard of Stable Diffusion and maybe Dolly 2. Dolly 2 is the OpenAI version of Stable Diffusion. And some of them are better and worse than, than each other, right? So today in Bumblebee, you can pull down a Stable Diffusion data set and generate images. So that's that's what you can do. What you can't do is is use Livebook to generate stable, diffused images with Dolly 2. All right, that's open AI proprietary stuff. So one more time, chat GPT, proprietary, open AI. Dolly 2, open AI, proprietary. All right, not those, not not today. But the rest of that open source stuff is is nice to play with and cool. And, and now that's really easy in Livebook. And as you said at the top, Hang on till after the news because we're going to be talking with Jose Valim and the other members of his team who worked on this and what this means. So really looking forward to that. All right, moving on. Next up, SpawnFest 2022. Winners have been announced. So let's go through a couple. So there's a lot of competitors in this and lots of projects. We're not going to cover them all. We're just going to highlight a top few here. So the first place overall was Jason Native. So we'll have a link to all these SpawnFest repos. Heads up, these are the SpawnFest repos, which are going to be archived and read-only. So these will likely pop up again under a different org and uh, continue their development elsewhere, or maybe not, but they typically do. The first one is JSON Native. And what this is, is an extension of the JSON package, which is for JSON uh, encoding in Elixir. And what this is uh, doing, as if you've probably guessed by the native part of the name here, is that it uses a sprinkle of NIFs to make it up to eight, eight times faster than the regular pure Elixir JSON library. So the the NIF is written in C++. They wanted to use Rust and Rustler, but Rustler doesn't really support, you know, all the things that they need. So they, they had to skip that. But all you do need is to just add the JSON native dep as a dependency uh, to your project, and that's it. You don't have to, like, really configure anything. So JSON will, like, detect that it's there or not, and if it's there, it'll be eight times faster. So that's <laughs> Super simple. That's pretty cool. I love it. So second place is a thing called Secret Vault. We were talking a little bit about this before. Looking through some of the tutorials and things, it looks like what it is is an alternative way to store your secrets encrypted in the priv directory. So there's some mix commands where you can say mix, secret, create, or new. I forgot the command exactly. You say what environment it is, dev or prod, and then you say what the name of the secret is and what the value of the secret is, and then it will put it into a directory and encrypt it locally. So, you know, for all of us who have been trained and it's been beaten into our brains to never store secrets in your repository, it's going against that, right? You're storing it in your repository. It's encrypted. 
it's an interesting concept. You'll have to check it out and, and see it for yourself. And the other second place, which tied for second place, is a project called The Arborists. It's all about trees, you know, like arborists being like working with trees. So this is extending live book with an easy way to explore nested data structures in the UI. So if you've ever worked on tools, maybe like in a browser extension or something where you get a JSON response and it gives it nice pretty markup and makes it collapsible and everything. So this is kind of like that. So in Livebook, say you're working with an API of an external service and you get this large JSON blob back. This automatically collapses everything to the base level. So then you can just have these little icons where you can click to expand. So it's really a tool that's helpful in Livebook when you're working with these deep nested data structures, like those big JSON blobs you might get back from an API. So it's pretty cool. All right. And the third place and the last one that we'll, we'll go into today is called DTU which stands for Data the Ultimate. So it creates a new data storage format. Think of something like uh, JSON and YAML as examples, but this is, this is different. It actually allows you to define a programming language too. So like they have examples of Erlang implemented in DTU. So you, you, so you write DTU and it like transpiles, I guess that's the word, into Erlang. And the same thing for HTML, same thing for CSS, same thing for, for JavaScript. So you've, you've got an ultimate data language, I guess. That's what the, I'm going to have to come up with a David Lang and call it David Lang, the ultimate or Mark Lang, the ultimate or something. It's pretty interesting. So while evaluating what it was capable of, you know, he like, he implemented these translators that went to these different, these different languages that I mentioned. And how this works is it uses leaks and yek. I think I'm saying that right for lexing and parsing, and it looks like a language in its own right to me now at this point, right? Pretty interesting. A good exercise of tokenizers and transformers like that. So that's that's pretty cool, like lexers and, and tokenizers. And there were more projects that received awards and recognition, so you can check out that list in the show notes to learn more about those. The one that we wanted to just follow up with was the project called Lively, which is since become renamed to Kino Ecto. And we talked with the team in episode 127, and they received first place in the Livebook category. Congrats to everyone who participated. It's really cool. Previously, we talked about GitHub Dependabot now supporting private hex repositories. So it was correct that this was primarily to help the open library. What we learned was as to why it was important. And it turns out if your project had any private hex repositories like OpenPro, then Dependabot would not work at all for your project on any of the dependencies. So with this fix, Dependabot can continue checking all the dependencies in your project. Tyler Young explained that any project that uses Open Web and Pro, Dependabot completely failed to run when you had private hex dependencies, so he got zero Dependabot PRs or security alerts until this feature was shipped. And next up, the Membrane GitHub org is changing to Jellyfish. So Membrane is a project that does a lot around multimedia streaming and processing. And it's really been hard for people to classify and quantify what it is because it's quite expansive. So the Membrane project is expanding into standalone media server territory, saying the unique feature of our server is the ability to combine different multimedia protocols. How the media server works, particularly how to implement server-side WebRTC features like simulcast or how to convert WebRTC to HLS, will be published on GitHub as an open book that everyone can contribute to. All right, and last up, I just wanted to highlight a library that I found to be pretty compelling. 
Those using Phoenix Live View and now with a lot more components in your, your Phoenix app than maybe you've had before, and especially with Tailwind, you can find the dance of customizing classes or trying to get variants on your buttons. Like you want to do the solid button here, the, the outline button there, but you don't really want to mess with like the colors necessarily. So combining classes and stuff can be a little bit awkward sometimes, especially when you have defaults and such. So taking inspiration from the JavaScript side, which is fantastic at this, there is a, I don't know what to, what to call it. Well, I'll, I'll just say a pattern. And the pattern is called class variance authority. I don't know why it's so authoritative and serious sounding, but that's the, that's the name uh, of this pattern, the class variance authority. What this does is that it kind of sets up this little convention for how you pass, think of it as props, but you pass props down to your, your components and this library will take care of applying these classes depending on, on the, the props that you, you pass down. So for example, if you have a button component and you're using this library, you would use your, your button component and you can pass in an attribute like variance and then you pass an outline and the library will take care of all of the classes to be applied when that variant is active or not. It's a good way to like simplify, I think, using your components when it comes to all those different kinds of Tailwind classes. It reminds me a little bit of what Surface can do for you too. Because right now, Phoenix Live View, I think is just, as it comes to classes, it just works on it like on a string level. But Surface and CVA here, Class Variance Authority, allows you to work with like options or maps or something like that. So you can pass in things like it's a outline variant true, something along those lines. So based on some logic. So if that is piquing your interest, go check out the library called XCVA. That is a port of this JavaScript pattern. That seems pretty cool. And that's it for the news. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. They make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today we're being joined by our special guests. We have Jose Valim, Paolo Valente, and Jonathan Klosko. I don't know if I got the names right. I did my best, but welcome, guys. I'm super glad to have you all here. Thanks for having us. Recently, Jose, you announced the new NX Bumblebee feature, which lets us pull these different models into Phoenix applications and Livebook super easy and executing and running these models that are pre-trained. We had to have you come on and I'm super glad you're able to do this to help us get a deeper insight into what's going on, how this was built and where things are going. But before we get into all that, I'd love to just hear a little bit about you guys individually. We've had each one of you on the show previously. So just tell us a little bit about yourselves, where you work and the kind of work that you're currently doing. I'm Joseph Alim. I work at Dashbit and I'm doing Elixir stuff. Yeah, so I'm I'm Paulo Valente. I'm working at Dockyard now. And I, I'm splitting my time between maintaining an X and doing some numerical computing related work for Dockyard as well. Yeah, um I am Jonathan Kosko. I work at Dashbit with Jose. And over the past year, two years, I've been mostly working Livebook and more recently on Bumblebee. So, Jose, you teased it a little bit 
thankfully it wasn't a long tease when you were showing off this graphic with the little numbat and the little train of bumblebees going over the top. David noticed a little train of ants at the bottom. I never figured out what the ants was for. Uh, misdirection. <laughs> <laughs> Diversion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, before we go too too much further, so I know we have a, a lot of you here that contributed to to Bumblebee, but there's a notable person that's not here, Sean Moriarty. So want to uh, throw a big shout out to him because I know that he's a key part in all of this work. So we don't want to forget that. Miss you, Sean. If you're listening, wish you were here, bud. Yeah, and I want to clarify, like Mark said correctly, like I announced it, but that's like literally the only thing I did on the whole thing. I announced it and nothing more. Like. Yeah, as we'll see, I really don't know much of, of how all those things work, but I'm uh, helping. I'm mostly helping on the Annex Foundation and then uh, alongside Paulo and uh, Jonathan and Sean are doing all the neural network amazing stuff. So another thing you did, Jose, was with the live book announcement, you created about a 20 minute YouTube video showing it off and how people can use it which was very cool, a good resource. And I enjoyed learning from that. So let's first jump in and talk about what Bumblebee is today, like what it is that was released. So it has like five different modes. I'd love to hear a little bit about this because you know each one of these different neural network tasks are running on different types of models, completely different types of models, right? Like one's about turning text into images and then another one is about getting sentiment from the text. Like, is this a positive or negative or surprised or... So they're very different types of things. I'd love to hear about how these all work to Bumblebee. Is it just the same? It, like, it doesn't really matter? Right. I will start with the foundation. Then, Jonathan, you're going to take it over, I'm pretty sure. So so each of those models, they are implemented. And there's a whole vocabulary here. So, uh, And let me know if I got something wrong, Jonathan. But each of those models, they're implemented in Bumblebee. And Bumblebee really has to know about all of them. So it's like, you know, like, uh, this one is stable diffusion. This is Bert. This is Roberta. So those are all different. I'm not sure if they're even different models or different parameters, but the Bumblebee implements all of those things. And then you can actually connect those things in different ways. So sometimes people will mix, like, they'll get like one existing model, but that to work with another neural network. So we have like this definition of models that can do all of those things. And then what you do is that you assemble them together in certain ways for them to do certain tasks. So sometimes the same model is going to be evolved in uh, different tasks to do different things. And it all depends like how we're wiring up the inputs and the outputs. And then, and then there are like words, like, so I think like the most accessible that makes sense for us to understand is the task. So like the, the live book integration that we're talking about, where you go, you click the smart cell and you choose a task. That's like kind of a high level concept of what we can do. And then there are several models and architectures under it. But I always get confused, like, what is the model? What is the architecture? So I'm going to let Jonathan clarify that. Yeah. So like there could be, uh, a model like BERT, which is a general architecture. And then depending on the task, there could be different heads, which is like the last layer of the model, right? So you could train the whole model on a specific task, like sentence classification, whether positive or negative. And then you could just switch the last layer and retrain it into a different task, um, but reusing like the whole understanding of the other layers. And also like some of these models are pluggable. So many of the text models are actually 
the same in the in the sense that they take the same input and the same they produce the same output, right? So and that's that's how you can like configure different models for the same tasks. So if you take a task like sentence classification, you can use Bert trained to this specific task, and you or you can switch to a different model like Roberta, uh, which has the same input and output. It just works different internally. But if it has the same input and output, what is the point of changing one for the other? Yeah, I mean, in terms of like the elements of the input and the like, not literally like the same numbers, but okay, 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 I, I got it. Right. So, and then I know, for example, there is something I think like stable because like. If you get stable, so we can think a lot about like, oh, we're going to do like uh, something with text, text generation, and then sentiment analysis that, of course, has to under understand the text. But then if you get like something like stable diffusion, it also has to understand the text as well because the input is text. Uh, and I think we are reusing. So stable diffusion, how, how does it process and understand the text? What, what is the model that it's using underneath it? Yeah, so stable diffusion is like a name for a group of models and the way they are stitched, they're like three different models, uh, at least that you would use. So the first part is converting the text into some intermediate representation, like a abstract presentation. And, and this part is usually the clip model, which is a model from OpenAI, which you can also use to convert text and images into intermediate re representation, which is like in the same space. So if you take the whole clip model, you could put a sentence like uh, a picture of a cat, and then you get some intermediate vector uh, out of that. Uh, and you can use like a different part of the model to input a cat image, and you would get an intermediate representation that is like very close to the numbers we got from the sentence, right? And for stable diffusion, we just use the text part of the model, uh, which converts text into an intermediate representation. Then once we have this intermediate representation, we use it as the context for, for generating the images. Uh, more specifically, we get a random image, like a totally random noise. And then we like iteratively try to improve that over time to sort of denoise the image, right? And we use the text as our context. That's, that's how the model works. And what is the architecture that if somebody's reading the Bumblebee code base, we are going to hear things like architecture. So. Yeah, so the first one is the clip model, and it's it's just like a base model. It doesn't have any sort of head because the way the, the output it produces is just plain numbers, not nothing like more specific. Uh, and then we have like a unit model which takes an image in and take and output an image out uh, that we use for the denoising. And and then we also have another model that takes an image, sort of this intermediate representation and produces an actual pixels image out of it. Yeah, this is very specific and like a little bit different from all of the other models, uh, which are usually one model per, per task uh, and are more specific. So would you say each of those, they represent a different architecture or the architecture is more about is more about the head that you've put on top? No, the architecture you would say like as a whole. As a whole. Okay. It's like really the combination of everything. Okay. So Jonathan, you seem to be very deep in this in this space and understanding this because I'm not actively in the machine learning space, right? I'm not actively learning about and doing working on these types of models. A lot of the terminology is unique. You know, you talk about the clip and the denoising and you know all these things they're very they have a very specific meaning. So I'm just curious what 
kind of studies are you doing or what's your, like, how did you get to into this? Is this like you learned about it through academic and classes or is you just coming at this on your own? I had like a very brief touches of machine learning here and there, uh, a little bit at the university, a little bit on my own, but I didn't really do anything like in practice previously. Basically the Mobile project is what drove my learning and understanding of stuff. Yeah, and it's worth clarifying before this sounds like way too daunting, is that like some of those things like clip, fit, stable diffusion, those are just names in the sense like, well, Phoenix is a name to a web framework. So people, they will define models and give them like whatever name they feel like giving to the model. And that's just the model name. It could be, you know, could be something better. And maybe that's a lot of them are abbreviations, right? So maybe like the abbreviation actually means something like BERT, because like what is BERT? Maybe it, it means something, but it's also it's very funny because somebody comes like with like a new a new general implementation of a model or a new model that solves a problem a different way. And then people do variations and then they do puns on top of the name. So like we have BERT and then there is a model which I think it's our favorite, which is common BERT. But yeah, those are all like just, you know, names that people give for some particular thing. Like we would give a name to a module in Elixir to mean something. And sometimes people create like a fancy project, you know, with a fancy name. And that's what it is. So so I'm, as I'm going to the, the Bumblebee GitHub repo, I see like a bunch of open PRs right now, you know, in various states. But the theme is, seems to be like add something, add this model, I'm guessing, right? I'm guessing that this is going to be some of the the value of what Bumblebee provides is that it's like this interface that puts these the whole architecture like you said the whole the whole thing right from taking the inputs sending it through NX and then making sense of it and then Livebook is giving you an interface to like do that dynamically type in you know your text and all that all that jazz but Bumblebee is that part that is doing all the stitching of of the layers does that sound does that sound right do I have the right idea here yeah, you could actually think of Bumblebee as sort of a, just a package that does some particular thing. So you can think like, even if you want to parse JSON in your application, you just install a package and call a function to parse the JSON. And in the same way, you can just pull in Bumblebee uh, and do image classification with a single function, right? We have all of those like high-level APIs which use models underneath, but you don't really know it. You don't really need to know about it, right? It just takes your image and gives you the label. Okay, so if, so for every model. Am I thinking of this right? Where every model, like stable diffusion v2 or something, there there's going to be like a stable diffusion module I can call it, you know, and give it an input and it'll give me an output. And then somebody might add stable diffusion v3 or something, and then that'll be a new module that do the, the a similar thing probably, and so on and so forth. If I understand right, these models can be quite large too. Is Bumblebee downloading gigabytes and gigabytes of, you know, training data on, on you know, when I install the package? How How is that being orchestrated? So there are, there are a couple of things here, like, that is going to help us understand how everything works. It's like, you can think that Bumblebee is, those are the functions. So Bumblebee is small because it's like, those are the functions that represent a neural network. But what makes Bumblebee exciting? Because if we only had Bumblebee, right? If we only had those functions, they're like, okay, I want to do stable diffusion. But if we don't have like the 
the data that powers the neural network for stable diffusion, the first thing we would have to do is that we would have to go and train that neural network so we can generate the image for you. And I assume that something like stable diffusion takes a lot of GPUs and a lot of time to be trained. So not only we have the models, the other crucial part of this is the hugging face integration because uh, I love hugging face because what they do, like we hear a lot, like if we start going into machine learning, like you hear a lot, like everybody's there, like, oh, we are democratizing the most. Democratizing. Yes, thank you. We are doing that for AI, right? But I feel like hugging face are one of the companies that I, I feel like they are actually doing it in the sense by, you know, all you like, cause you can see now, like for the Elixir community, like we went from having nothing. And now what we can do is just like click through buttons and we can run a neural network. Right. So I feel like it's really making it accessible to, at least for Elixir developers, it's like, it's really, really accessible. And that's the important part because we have like, we have the models, which are like kind of functions, but for in order for them to tick, they need to have like their parameters. Right. And we can download those trained parameters from, from, from hugging face. So when, so when you try stable diffusion, so if you watch the video, everything happens so fast, but because I already did a dry run, if you go use Lifebook and Bumblebee, one of the things that it's going to do is that it has to load the parameters for the model that you are trying. And that's going, that's going to, I think like for stable diffusion is like three gigabytes or something like that. There's, but then the, the model is, is, as we said, it's not super big. Like there is this important part that in there. So Bumblebee, it's doing it, it, it like it seems simple, but it's doing a lot of things. So one's like it understands, it implements the models. The other one, the other thing that it does is that it uh, can get these those parameters from Hugging Face and plug into those models. So now we can make like those models. Uh, run and and generate images for us, do like sentiment analysis and this kind of stuff. Because if you have the model, like for example, because a model is a neural network, it's like it's a neural network and it only knows like bytes, right? But you want to send a string to it, like what string is uh, what's said like hello world, right? And you need to make sense of it. So there are like steps that come after and before, like tokenization. You have to tokenize a string. So Bumblebee also knows that it knows like it has the models and then it's, it knows like oh this model i can do that for like text text analysis right or sentiment analysis so it knows like what goes in front of the model what goes after the model and then it packages it together into something that we call a serving and that's what we expose from the live live book is like it's uh it's the model with the parameters and with all these steps to put data into this whole thing, put like meaningful data for us and get meaningful data out. And all the wiring is happening in Bumblebee. And it's actually like at the beginning, you said that we were quick from like teasing to releasing, but actually like the first tease, like that image, the first time we published it was uh, six months ago, I think, because that was the moment where we had the first models like working and we could give something to it and come back. But then as we started adding more models, like we had to do a bunch of, uh, because like some of those models, when you're going to, they're not large, but we have to represent like as a compiler, we have to represent those models internally. We have to optimize them, do a bunch of stuff. And we had like bugs, like your machine would run out of memory when we're trying to compile a model because 
we had uh, like sometimes we're like duplicating the graphs when we should not. So like a neural network will become like two times larger or 10 times larger than it should. So we had to fix all those bugs. And then uh, and then we got a little bit closer, like, OK, we can release. And then we're like, oh, wait, but now uh, we want to have like this unified experience. So like the the demo that we showed in the video, we probably talked the first time about it like a year ago. Like that's the demo we want to do. So then we had Bumblebee working, but for us to get in the version where I had something running inside Livebook and I could get that same thing and put that into Phoenix uh, and figuring out what is that abstraction, what goes in, what goes out, and then putting everything together, that was probably like two or three months of work as well. So, you know, it took a time. Like, like I think there were like two or three times where... Like we, we were like, oh, now we're going to do it. And then we were like, oh, this is this is missing. Oh, we got more to do. Yeah. It was also like a little bit like kind of like, I think Stable Diffusion, we implemented it like we, I mean, and uh, not me. Uh, <laughs> Yont and, and Sean, I think you implemented like very quickly uh, after it was out. And it was really nice to see, but we just could not make it public, right? Like it was not there yet. A lot of the things were changing. Maybe you made parts of it public, because I remember Axon serving, maybe that was around, uh, maybe my timeline's off, but maybe that was around six months ago, three months ago, because that, that's a, if I understand right, that's a critical piece in this workflow, right? Yeah, so the serving is the idea of encapsulating. So if you think about like a, a neural network task, there are things that you want to do as part of the neural network, and like you want to do that in the GPU. Right. But there are things that you cannot do in the GPU. There are things like, for example, like I was saying, like if you want to do like a sentiment analysis, you have like to tokenize the text and the GPU cannot do that as far as I know. Right. So there are some things that you want to do in the GPU or in the CPU, like as part of the neural network. And then there's some things that you don't want, like you want to do that or in Elixir code or calling out to, to Rust, for example. We want to figure out like a model that the things that run in the neural network we are we we can batch it because the thing about GPU is that it's really parallelizable. So what you do is that if you want to do like text analysis, uh, sentiment analysis, you're not going to do that on on one text. You kind of want to get like text from a bunch of people and run it once. So we want something that can batch those things, but you want to batch only the part that runs in the GPU. You don't want to batch like the tokenizer. So for example, if you think, let's think about like the, the demo that I did, like imagine that we, we want, as people are typing, we want to, do the sentiment analysis. And we are doing that in live view. And imagine that we have like a hundred people typing at the same time, like the tokenizer thing, which is not happening in the GPU, you want that to run directly inside the live view, right? So you want to run that concurrently. So if we have a hundred users, you are tokenizing everybody concurrently. Then we batch them, do the GPU part, then the GPU processes it. We send it back after the G like we we group everything for the GPU. Then we unbatch and spread the results around, and then we process to show the results. So like figuring out all this model, we started with Axon serving, and then we realized I don't remember what was the trigger, but then we realized that oh, it's because we're also working on a project open source, which is uh, called uh, Scholar. And that's like the known, because machine learning is a lot of things. So it's like the traditional machine learning. And then we realize like, what, like if this serving thing would probably be good for a scholar as well. So we realized that it makes sense to bring it to an X. 
And I think that was what, like the last one, two months of work, right? You know, like figuring out the serving and implementing them. Well, I want to come back a little bit because you've mentioned Hugging Face as this incredible resource. And for those who are new to the machine learning landscape, I think Hugging Face, first of all, it's like, what does that mean? What 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 is that? You know, like when I first heard Hugging Face, I'm like, am I hearing that right? Their little logo is the emoji of the little hug with a big face. So it's a hugging face. But beyond that, like when people go to Hugging Face, the website, and you're mentioning that Bumblebee is able to use Hugging Face as a resource or a repository for downloading these pre-trained models. So there are a lot of different kinds of models there that people are just making available in the community and sharing. I guess one of the questions I have is what limitations or abilities does Bumblebee currently have? If I just go find any given model that's available on Hugging Face, what what likelihood am I going to be able to use it? For whatever model we want to use, we need to have an, the Elixir implementation inside Bumblebee using Axon, right? So, you know, at this point, we have a number of state-of-the-art models, uh, but the list is huge. So in order, you know, to, to use all of them, we, we need to implement all of them in Elixir. There is this gap. Uh, however, that's why the smart in Livebook, it has these like predefined examples so that you can see which of those most popular models are actually available. So you don't need to like filter out, filter them out yourself. There's something that I, I like to add to that as well, is that even though you need to implement those, the models in Elixir, some of the models are kind of more similar to each other than other ones. So we've been talking about tokenizing and intermediate representations. And if you have like similar functionality, you probably have less code to write. So the tendency is that as we move through time, we have less and less to implement in like the foundational layers of Bumblebee. So new models can be implemented, especially in the, whenever you're processing new types of data, you probably have lots and lots of work to do regarding getting the intermediate representation right. Because for text, you have tokenizers. For audio, you have Fourier transforms and time frequency representations that are totally unrelated to that. And I also like to add for people that don't know all of these terms, uh, a simple analogy for you to kind of grasp why you need to have an inter intermediate representation. And I think the thing people will most relate to is 3D movies when you go to the cinema and watch 3D movies. If you just sit down without the glasses, you're going to just see the same data that you're going to get in the end, but it's not separated correctly. And so you just see a lot of junk. But when you put on the, gra the glasses, each of the lenses will separate part of the, the image, part of the data that's coming into your eye. And each eye is going to receive half of the data. And in the end, your brain will be able to, set to, to process it correctly. And for computers, kind of the same way. You receive, for instance, a string of text, but the text can be represented in UTF-8, UTF-16, or ASCII, and you can tokenize if, if it's the same text. It, it will probably talk, tokenize to the same representation or audio data that's coming in in MP3 or WAVE or FLAC 
or whatever container, and then you want to convert it to a time frequency representation, which, which kind of tells you which frequency components are in each timestamp. And that is what actually the model processes. Yeah, and I think this is kind of shows like the amount of work there is like to, again, it's like it's three clicks, but the amount of work that is behind everything, because like, even if you're doing an image classification, the neural network is going to expect the image to be on a certain size, right? And the image is going to expect like the image to be represented like with raw bytes, but like PNG, JPEG, right? Like all those formats, they have their own like way where they package the image, their own ways of doing that. And so, you know, like not only we have to do the neural network, but now we have, we need to have a library that can get PNG or JPEG and convert that into this, like this tensor format. So we can feed that into the neural network. But not only that, the image needs to have like a, a certain size or certain characteristics. So we have to have like something that is going to resize the image. And we can either do that before, right? But if you want to do that as part of the neural network, uh, we can implement the algorithm for resizing the image using an X. So it runs as part of the neural network. And then you can do that using the GPU with super, super fast. So like we had like, and every new area that we do, we have like to tackle all those problems. And then, and then there are interesting things. So like for Bumblebee, what we did, and if you go to Bumblebee, there's like the examples folder with like single file Phoenix examples. So one of the things that we, we realized like for image, is that we can use the canvas in JavaScript both to resize the image and the canvas can actually convert PNG to bytes, like JPEG to bytes and so on. So it was like, this is super cool because we can do the work on the client instead of overloading the server with like converting PNG into, into blobs. But we also have the library that Coco implemented called STB image, which you can use. So like if you want to do some like batch processing on the server, your images are on S3. So we can use STB image to like to parse the images, get the tensor out of it and send that to the neural network. And yeah, and then audio is the same thing. And then text is the same thing. But the text was really cool because Hugging Face, they have a library called tokenizers written in Rust that does the tokenization. Chris Granger, he, he wrote, uh, who was on the show as well, uh, he wrote bindings to this library. And everything is fast because we are precompiling this Rust library using Rust to precompile that Philip Sampaio, he, who worked on, he was also on the show talking about it. So there are like so many pieces like in the whole ecosystem of things that we have to do to get to this result that it's really like, uh, you know, once we, if we go out of the neural networks and we consider like, and we consider everybody contributions and all the packages, everything that is necessary to make this stick, it's a lot of projects and contributions from a lot of people. And that's really, really nice, especially considering that like, one year ago, certainly two years ago, we had like zero of it. We had like none. None of those pieces were in place. I'm glad you made that point that there are so many contributions. It really sounds like it's like a whole community effort almost to get to this point where you're able to say this is able to be released. Bumblebee is a thing now. That's really neat. But one of the things you mentioned there that I, would, I wanted to bring out because it was very impressive for me was that Phoenix example that Chris McCord created. So he said, you nerd sniped him and he had to try it out. But what he did is in a single 
Elixir file. Like in a single file, it creates an entire Phoenix application and does live view and does image classification where you can drop in an image and it will have a little asynchronous task that runs and spins and then says, oh, this is what it is. And he deployed it. And it's like all in, you know, around 300 lines of code, you know, especially when you take out white space. The big point that made for me is how much leverage Bumblebee gives us as Phoenix developers who aren't in the machine learning space. If there's already a model out there that Bumblebee already supports, I can like use it and do something that was previously incredibly complicated or impossible for me. But I, I have the ability now to add a feature to my application that's very advanced and in very little amount of code. And that's that was the most impressive point for me. Yeah, the the in the three hundred lines of code, and I think like a lot of it is actually JavaScript because, as I was saying, like we have the insight of like doing the image resizing and conversion on the client, and Jonathan wrote that code. And then what Phoenix is doing is is doing the batching part that I was talking about, like trying to batch a bunch of rec uh, recognitions uh, to to happen at the same time. And we know we can deploy easily like uh, Phoenix applications for, we can easily deploy like Phoenix applications uh, on fly, for example, using Docker. So what I, what I asked Chris and uh, was that I want this to really be a single file example. And it's not like because, oh, it's a small single file, but because if you give it a whole Phoenix app, because there are many files, which I think like it's totally necessary for an actual project. Because there are so many files, you wouldn't be able to see where the neural network pieces are. Because you'll be like, oh, there is a piece in your application. There, there are a few, like in, in, I, I covered them in, in, in the video. Like you change the application start and then you do some things in your live view and then you do some JavaScript. But I want it to be a single file just so it's, a, it's nice for people to see all the pieces and then extract them out to their project. So what I told him is like, can we deploy single file Elixir script to, to fly and, and he made it work. And that was, was really cool. And then by the time that the, this, this recording of the podcast is out, I think, uh, hugging phase will have announced something like, uh, Docker support as well. So you'll be able to run them on, like, get the same Docker file and run it on, on hugging phase too, which is really cool. And I think it's especially good for like, getting people who are not like Elixir developers excited about like the machine learning things happening. Another thing I wanted to express was how easy Livebook made it. It's like I watched your video. I realized you know, under the smart cell, there's a new neural network task. And just doing that, I had an idea, right? I'd seen this image classification and I knew there's another feature called GPT-2 for text generation, it's like, well, I want to see what I can do to mash these together. So if I can identify the noun and then generate some text around that. So I was able to just open up a live book, do these smart cells. And within a couple minutes, I was playing with my idea, right? I didn't create a whole Phoenix project. I didn't have to understand how to do the tokenizers or anything like that. I was just able to use the smart cells to get it going. Well, then I really wanted to dig into it. So then I just turned it into code. And then I started looking at what the code was. Like, oh, here's a Bumblebee has a thing called tokenizers. And oh, there's different, let me look at the docs. There's different tokenizer options. Well, I wonder what those do. But that was a super great way to step into this. 
as someone who just wanted to start playing with it and mashing together two different ideas. What can I do with this? Live book and the smart cells made it super easy. And it was very, it was actually really fun. So we've talked a lot about how things are amazing and how it's all coming together. I want to talk about some messy parts too, maybe some not so not so great things. And not this isn't about Bumblebee necessarily. This is going to be about the whole ecosystem as an item here. So right around the time that this came out, Bumblebee came out, there was also on all the socials, as far as I could tell, uh, another thing that had just come out and is still, you know, wowing people, the even general public folks, right? Non-developer folks. And that thing's called ChatGPT. And before ChatGPT, there was another one for the image, you know, side of things, Stable Diffusion called Dolly2. And, you know, even, even now, as I'm looking for how to do text sentiment analysis, the only one that I know of that I know to, how, how to look for is called Vader. When I Google these things, you know, I look at Hugging Face, I type in Vader, I don't see anything that's relevant. When I type in ChatGPT, I, I see proprietary stuff. When I see Wally 2, I see proprietary stuff. Give me advice as, as a non-ML person. If I see one of these cool things that are going on, how do I explore getting that to work with Bumblebee and with Elixir or how to even, you know, get the, the data set? Where, where do I even start on that? Those are all closed source, right, Jonathan? Yeah, so DALI, ChatGPT, and GPT-3, they're all openly and closed source. Yeah, which is ironic, but yeah. <laughs> GPT-2 is also OpenAI, and it is public, so... And they also did Whisper, which is... is isn't it Whisper is OpenAI as well? Or I'm getting my... I don't, I don't know. But they, they also did Clip. Yeah, so in those cases, I think, like, I, I they want you to use their APIs. So if you want to play with those ones that's the route, that's the way to go. But usually people try to have equivalent, but I don't know like how good it is, you know? And we're probably going to have like some some variation. Like I think we had like even like GP3, GPT-3 mini or something like that. But the other thing that I think it's worth talking about is that in some of those cases, it may be, I'm not sure, is that like those models, they are so large that you wouldn't be able to run on your machine anyway because they are super, super large. And that's part of what makes them them good. It's one of my concerns, like, you know, like coming from programming from the side where, you know, especially like working at the language level, look at frameworks where we, we are trying to make things as lean, as like efficient as possible, right? And then you go to ML where it's like, well, we have this big thing. And then you're like, well, can we make it smaller? And then everybody like, I don't know, right? Like, like, can we look at it, like, what is under and try to answer, like, if we, and try to see if we need this part or this other part? You can't do any of that, especially when we're talking about them, like, democratizing AI, what it means for us to keep on going to larger and larger and larger models, because at some point it just means that nobody can run it, right? You you have to pay somebody to run them for you because the cost is like four GPUs and having all of the programming model and toolkit for like synchronizing the neural network across multiple GPUs, which is something that we want to do. We want to get at some point, but it just end up putting like the getting, like, you know, like the, we wouldn't be able to have like the live book experience where you do three clicks and run something. It would be like three clicks and insert, insert your API token to something else, right? <laughs> and you use a service to do that. 
Yeah, so I think like that's one of the one of the things that we will we'll see how it will evolve. A short version of that is that Chat GPT and Dolly two, those are have been some impressive demos. Those are closed sourced behind a paywall. It's you can't get it for free. I think through their trial through their product, but it is a product kind of offering. And it's confusingly served by a company called OpenAI. <laughs> so <laughs> when you see OpenAI, it's like, nope, not open source. <laughs> Closed AI. So that's that's part of the messiness uh, that I've been seeing as an outsider, I guess, uh, of of trying to jump into this this realm and learn words and learn terms because there's so many new new words to to understand here to just to just understand you know what you're talking about. But then you see like the amazing things that you might you know see on 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 Twitter like like these image these generated images like wow that's that's crazy so the good news is there are some of those open source models that we can use with livebook with bumblebee they're just not those huge uh models that that might be behind open ai or other other companies uh maybe this is bumblebee maybe this is something else but and hugging face i think is helping with some of this with democratizing some of the the ai sets like that but what do you see as like the messiest thing that could be cleaned up or that could be like clarified and simplified like what what would be the next thing that bumblebee could do so one of the things that we have been talking about is uh because you get the trained models but there is a chance you want to specialize them a little bit more right so i have like i have like this pipe dream of training models on the elixir documentation so you can ask questions about Elixir. And I don't know how practical it is, uh, especially because like, so they are, because they're concerned. Like, so for example, like uh, we were talking about like ChatGPT and then it knows about Elixir and it can actually generate, like sometimes it's going to generate like valid Elixir code. But the thing is that it doesn't know when it's wrong. So it's always going to interpolate. So if you ask like, hey, chat, like if you say like, hey, do something with lists, it may as well figure it out or something with strings. But if you say like, hey, do like use a linear algebra library, which is very new in Elixir to solve this problem, it's going to emit code that does not exist, right? It's just like, it's going to... And then one of the questions that I have is like, we have like this really large model that knows how to do those things, but is there, could the model be able to say, hey, I actually don't know that? Because that would be interesting, like to, in actually having like special purpose, let's say chat GPT to help with certain things. And then the certain things is going to depend exactly on, on what you want to specialize that model one. And that's something that we want to, to explore. But again, it's like uh, training uses much requires much more memory and much more like machine resources than than the inference, which is what we are doing. So there's like a lot of work to do that. Like I would say like three to six months of work. Like there are a bunch of techniques that we have to to implement in order to make that work. But I think that would be super cool. Like something where you say, look, I use that model. Now let me train it with this data and you have a UI to train it with the data that you want. You do all that for Livebook and then it gives you like the updated parameters out that you can put or back to Hugging Face or you can put your application protection. That's something that I don't see a lot of people doing and I think it can really be a differential to get like 
even people outside of Elixir and outside Livebook to like to try this out because we'll be solving actual problems. But in, th in terms of messiness, like you said, like, you know, like, oh, you see a bunch of requests saying add this and add that. That's because I think last time Huggy Face, they crossed like a hundred models that they know in there too, right? Uh, right, Jonathan? Yeah, I think so. Much more than a hundred. And, and how many do we have? 20? Yeah, 20, I would say. Yeah, so you know, like it's add, right? Exactly because so there there is a lot of catching up to do there, but maybe some of those they are just old, right? Like maybe nobody, maybe people are not using Camembert anymore. They migrated to a new cheese. We don't know. So maybe some of those are not relevant. But yeah, and there is something there, and we we have like we've done like zero zero work on making things more efficient. So right now our stable diffusion, it seems to require 12 gigabytes of RAM in the GPU. And I think the official version of Hugging Face requires three altogether, but they have something smart, which is like, if you have less than three gigabytes in your GPU, they run a little bit of the neural network. Then they get part of that neural network, put it in disk, and then they they load data from the disk. So like there are so so many things that we can do. But in this case, it's also a lot of like we are behind in a sense. Like we are like those techniques they exist in other ecosystems. And what we are doing is like bringing those techniques to to Elixir. And what we can offer is like NX as a unified abstraction. So for example, like the the thing that I did in the demo, right? We were able to do like with NX and Mobile B. If you're doing that in Python, it's like two, like three or four, like it's a bunch of different libraries you have like to stitch together. And then if you want to deploy it, you need to get another service only to run that neural network on. So like we are starting to offer some things in terms of like experience and the live book experience, but in a lot of things we are like catching up. And I think like at some point we, when we, we are done catching up, we can start like progressing, like providing things that are hard to find elsewhere. Even on other stuff, I don't know if I talked uh, if I talk about this before. So there is one thing that uh, people call like federated learning, which is like sometimes you want to train a neural network, but you don't want like so if you're running on the device, for example, you don't want to send the data from the device for whatever reason because it's large because it's of privacy concerns. So what you want to do is that you want to train on the device and then kind of send the updates of the neural network over the wire. And that's something like, it just sounds something like Elixir would be really great for. Like it's a combination of nerves and Elixir for doing that would be awesome. So there are areas where I think like, I talked about this for sure about like distributed programming. So distributed programming for machine learning developers is using multiple GPUs. And for us Elixir developers, it means something different. But you also find today like libraries in Python that are bring actors for distributed, for our version of distributed programming. And then it's like, well, what if we start doing that as well? Because we already have the distributed like over the network version. What if we can distribute over the network and over the GPU and have ways of saying, look, this neural network is actually spread out across like four different Elixir nodes. 
and it just knows how to get data from one to the other if it makes any sense or like to, to distribute the computation. So there are a bunch of things that we can do, I think, that will get us closer to a state of the art. But just, we're just starting to do that from the ex user experience. But there is a lot, really a lot of work ahead of us. Let's talk a little bit more about what there is right now, what people can play with. Let's get Jose from the woods and back into a proper place. <laughs> Just in finishing setting some expectations, I asked Sean Moriarty, is this something that we could make run like the stable diffusion, that we could make it take advantage of Apple M1 and M2 chips? And he's like, oh, well, that's, you know, right now it's EXLA. And in order to do that, it would need to be core ML, which is a major effort, right? So like that, just as a heads up, this uses EXLA, and which needs GPUs for it to be accelerated beyond just doing CPU. But that's really made the biggest deal when you're talking about stable diffusion and images and stuff. I think when you're doing a lot of the text things, the model execution running in the CPU is totally cool. It, it totally works. So I just wanted to get some ideas from you guys. As an Elixir developer who's not in the ML space, I'm not going to be training my own models. What are some of the ideas you have of ways I could take what has already been created here and is available to me like an image classifier? What are some of the ideas that I could do to start using these in my apps right now and get some of these advanced features with very little effort on my side? It's a kind of long, long shot idea, but imagine you have a game running in Elixir. Or for instance, imagine if you have a distributed instant messaging client that runs in Elixir and you want to have a, an automatic moderation bot, for instance, you can now use models that do text classification, text sentiment analysis to get the general idea of a given message and then prioritize the negative ones for proper moderation to to do or kind of flag some users that are sending lots of negative image, negative messages, or even if you have a more advanced model, I'm not sure if one of the, the ones that we have do, can do that, but that can actually detect curse words. And then you have a filter that runs in Elixir for an application that is running in Elixir and you don't have to kind of go to another service like a proprietary Amazon service or wherever cloud you're using. Those are very good examples. I also think like Bumblebee can be a really good combination with Broadway because maybe you want to do some things on the background, not necessarily real time. And that can be a really powerful combo. And there is one task that I actually see people using a lot as well. We, we, we don't have it implemented. We have the models, but we don't have like it on like the the Livebook UI, which is NER. What does it stand for, Jonathan? It's na named entity recognition. Basically, like finding named entities in the text uh, that you can like auto-link or highlight for the reader. Yeah, so I can see like that being powerful as well, like for some applications, being able to figure out like this is a location, this is a person, and then you can cross-reference that with other things you have in your database and provide a unified experience for the user. And that's something like you're, you you may want to do that in the background, for example, or real time, doesn't matter. Uh, well, named entities ha has an application on, in law, for instance. If you have lots of digital contracts and you want to send the 
highlighted pages for the interested people. Imagine a contract that has hundreds and hundreds of pages and the people that are involved need to kind of get the general idea of when they're, they're being mentioned in a contract. And that doesn't need to be real time, for instance. So that kind of plays into the idea that not everything needs to be. You click and run and get the results right at the same time. Another little tip that I learned just from watching you, Jose, and it was in Chris McCord's little demo too, is if I have a live view, you created a little task that went and did it in the background, did the execution of the model and was showing just a little spinner activating right there. But because it's processes and the processes are linked to the live view, it's like super elegant way of just doing background asynchronous stuff all right there in the live view. I thought that was super cool. You know, I, I'm sure I have lots of other applications for just that little tip. Yeah, we had a conversation about it. We changed the Elixir docs because we were, we were saying like, if you was sync, you shouldn't wait. And then I had a discussion with Jonathan, like, well, you know, we're not awaiting here. So, uh, and then we realized, well, the Joe server is kind of awaiting for us because the Joe server receives all the messages. And yeah, but I think I, I really like how that example came out. Like, it's funny because Jonathan wrote it and then I practiced it for the video. And as I practiced it for the video, I was able like to remove some kind, like the first version, I was like, oh, I can simplify this a bit more. And then on my second trial recording, I was able to to simplify it even a bit more. And then I came up, which I think was quite elegant with like, I was better matching on the task and checking if that task matches the reference that we had in the state. So that was, I, I felt it came out like really neat. But the, the first time that I wrote the code was Jonathan and I, we, we discussed and wrote that code did not came out like that. So it was nice how even for my own process, I was able to, to refactor it. And going slightly back to the previous topic of what we can do with those things, it's also worth saying that there are two companies that I know of that are already using, uh, not Bumblebee, but are using, because Bumblebee is new, but are using Exxon and NX, like in production to give value to, to customers, both Prize and Amplified AI. So we're going to drop a link to them for people to, to check it out. So I don't think we've said all of what the different features are that are at least currently available in the Livebook demo. As you mentioned, there are others that may be available that are not featured in the Livebook smart cells. But I just want to mention them. There's like stable diffusion, which is text to image, image classification, which is like the idea of dragging a photo into it and having it analyze it and identify like, what is the noun that this thing is? Is this a bicycle? It's a banana. It's a spaceship. And then text classification which can do sentiment analysis. And I was thinking about that. So you want to be careful about the all the different influences of ideas that are coming into your brain because they influence the way you think. At least that's the way I approach it. And so I could write a little classifier that could go over my whole Twitter feed and all the people I follow, who are all the negative people? And maybe I'll just not follow them. <laughs> and then another one, fill mask. So it's like you can give it a text and then give it a place identify a marker where like a, a, a blank and have it fill in the blank. So, you know, that it can identify and correctly describe something. And then GPT-2 text generation, which is, it's a really fun idea. It's like you can give it a, start off a bunch of text and prompt it, and then it will finish it, that it will continue the idea of whatever was being expressed. So those are the ones that I saw right now. And those are just 
really fun to just play with, you know, and Livebook is a great place to play with them. Yeah, uh, Film Mask is currently only on main. We're probably going to release a new version soon. And what else is on the pipeline, Jonathan? Yeah, so the next one I'm currently implementing is the name entity recognition. Uh, because we already have it as a part of Bumblebee, we just need to expose it uh, in the Livebook UI. We also have a kind of draft on Whisper as well. Sean started yesterday, I think, and I'm contributing the initial intermediate representation conversion. And for those of us who don't know what Whisper is, what's the little, the short description? Whisper is audio uh, speech to text classification. So it takes an audio input and outputs the text that's contained in, in the audio. Are there any other milestones that are on the horizon that you guys can share at this point? You just shared some about Whisper and named entity recognition. Anything else that like either models or, I don't know, features that you're thinking of? Yeah, so uh, regarding we can share, uh, one of the things that I think this was like the last big thing that we were doing it like, surprise! It was actually like the, la the, the week of the announcement. It was very exhausting. Yont and I were talking about that because we were coordinating with Hugging Face because it was really nice that they wanted to help us like, how to say, like boost and get visibility into this. And then there were things like just before the, like they were like, what was broken? And we had like to do the new XLA builds. I think like, oh yeah, there was a new CUDA version, like the drivers for, for NVIDIA. Like we had to do, they were supposed to be backwards compatible, but they were not. So we had to do like new builds. So we are like, oh, we can, I think we're ready to launch on Tuesday, but we had to wait for the drivers to be built or something like that. And it was really trying it, and it was just a lot. Like, and it was also, I think, I think in, in that week we released how many projects, you know, to like publish a new version of Hacks. I think it was like 15, close to 20. yeah. <laughs> Because as we were saying, like, there are a bunch of, like, moving pieces, right? There are a bunch of, like, we had kind of a DAG, uh, like, a graph of what we need to release in this layer so we can re we can release the next version of libraries and so on. And then we're like, like, there was an X image. And then we we're like, okay, this is, whew, this, this is enough. But it's also, like, you probably heard, like, Chris McQuart saying, like, if somebody, if somebody asked, like, if you redid, like, the one million connections on a single server... If he always redid benchmark, he says, like, what is the point? Like, what can I do, right? Like, I can do it, like, for 2 million connections, right? But people are going to be like, ah, right? Like, yeah, you did one, you can do two. So I also think, like, this was such a big announcement in the sense that it would probably be very hard to beat it. And I think we're looking more towards, like, just continue releasing things as they pop up. And hopefully we'll see, like the community contribute more as well. And we are starting to see that, like uh, people helping us like in the machine learning channel, in the Learning Ecosystem Foundation. So with all that said, what we really want to look at next is uh, new models. Like, you know, like we were talking about Whisper and we want to do things related to, to learning and transfer learning. So when you get an existing model and you specialize, it's called transfer learning. I don't know why it's not called like specialization or something like that, but it is transfer learning. And that's something that we also want to look at. And and that's it, like from 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 the Bumblebee side, like just continue working on things. Paul is working on an X signal, which is going to be really useful if you want to do anything related with audio and 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 video. 
The other thing is that you mentioned just another clarification is that you talk about like core ML and how to make it run on M1. So one of the things that I, I did not talk about this in the video is that we did our best in general to do like as much in Elixir as possible. Like a lot of it, like everything's implemented in Elixir, like the neural networks are implemented in Elixir, not everything, like almost everything's implemented in Elixir. And I like that because it really gives us like control and agency. Like, you know, we can, we can better integrate everything as part of the language, unify the user experience and all those kind of things, which is way better than like having a library and we're just buying this to that library. So we are like, our APIs are dictated by what some, someone else came up with in another ecosystem. So, but there is a very thin layer, which is the compiler layer, which is responsible for getting like those neural networks and compiling them to run on the CPU and GPU. And then we have different compilers. We have two of them right now. Uh, one is uh, EXLA, which is based on Google technology. And the other is based on, on Torch, which is from Facebook. And Torch actually supports Apple Silicon. So that may be a path for us to have like better experience on M1, but maybe not. But one of the things that would be really cool, it's not in our plans right now, but, but it would be really cool. Like if somebody's listening to this and you're excited about this, like working on different compilers, it can even be a direct compiler to Core ML. That, that's totally fine. But like uh, we have projects like Apache TVM. Google has other projects for like compiling tensors. So we could try to target them as well. So those would be really, really nice to see more happening, but not in the plans. But I think, I think kind of gives a sense. Like, you know, we, like we have like, we have like this delicious sandwich and then maybe you can change the bun at the bottom with like with different compilers or build new fingers on the bun at the top. But we hope like the, the middle of the sandwich is, is really good and really tasty. Well, you mentioned a few different things that people could probably do to get involved. Where should they go if they want to get involved and help out? Go to the project. So I think like the main projects related to these are NX, Exome, Bumblebee, and Livebook. And there are usually issues, discussions happening there. Those are the main things you want to look at. And then go to the Erlang, the Slack of the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation. So if you create like a, a free account in the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation, on your profile there, you can get an invite to the Slack and there is a machine learning channel. And we are, we are like all hanging out there and, and having discussions. And it has been like very alive in the last week. So it's really, really nice. And Delta time zones, it's basically 24 seven people there as well. Well, if people want to get in touch with any of you individually, like Paolo, you're working on Whisper and NX Signal, or Jonathan with your named entity classifications, or just uh, the stuff that you've done with Livebook, or anyone, where can people find it, each of you online? So I'm still on Twitter. I plan on creating the, the alternative account as well, perhaps this week before we launch, we launch this episode. But I'm always on online on Slack as well, the Erlang Foundation Slack. I'm I'm also in the Elixir forums. So yeah, and it's the same handle everywhere, so it's easy to find me. Yeah, and as for me, you can also find me on the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation Slack, or you can email me if you're old school. And uh, yeah, I am on uh, Gen Server Social right now. That's where I'm keeping most of my activity, but I still go to Twitter only for the announcements. 
if we have like, so for example, if we, if you're like, oh, okay, I want to know about those things like Whisper, I, I will announce them on Twitter, but just like kind of quick shouts. And yeah, and the Slack also going to be there. And Elixir Forum, for example, the usual places. Well, in the US and in many Western countries, this is holiday time. So for many, this may mean we have a little bit more downtime, and that might be a great time to start playing with Livebook and these new tools with Bumblebee and these smart cells. I know I had a lot of fun just with my little playing last couple of evenings. But thank you guys for joining us and talking with us. Sorry we couldn't have Sean Moriarty with you as well. And I know there's, as you mentioned, there's so many other people who've been involved in making this announcement possible. But I was glad that we were able to get some greater insight and appreciation for what went into this work. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. (laughs) 